Just before we get going, um, really quickly help me out just so we can kind of gauge the level of relevance here. How many people um, here today have um, ever disagreed with someone? Okay, good. I was, I was fearful this wouldn't apply. Um, we get to hit a point in a text today where we see a modeled resolution to conflict for us between Peter and Paul, between two significant growing factions in the early church, and wondering what's going to happen when they come back together. And I think that this is a really, really important message at this point in time for us, because while we're growing in so many different capacities right now, we are learning how to put people and objects on things like planet Mars. We can split atoms. We can create timeless masterpieces of art. We continually work towards the increasing beautification of our world through the things that we learn and what we get to go out and do and work towards shalom and God's design for all things. And yet at the same time, I think we are getting way worse at fighting. We don't know how to resolve conflict. And while we are becoming increasingly digitally connected, we are simultaneously becoming increasingly relationally disconnected. I remember in seminary I got into a class and it was all on how to do premarital counseling and working with couples and the dynamics of relationships. This has always been one of my favorite parts of ministry. And the class starts off that day with a prof coming in, goes over to the board and writes, any two monkeys can make love, not everybody knows how to fight. Isn't that a great start to a class? But how true is that? We are so bad at fighting, at resolving our conflict. And the reality is that God never wants there to be animosity between us and others. He's created us for shalom, for perfect relationship. And so to allow God to enter into our relationships is to give him space to heal the chasms that exist between us. The distance that you feel. You ever been in a a situation where you're at odds with someone and there's just this sense of angst? Like it robs your sleep. It steals your joy. It quickens your heart and raises your blood pressure. You were not made to live in fullness and flourishing with Jesus like that. Wow. I would love it if I had a super dynamic sermon illustration about how that fit in right now, but that really was an accident. I'm sorry. On top of all of this fighting right now, we live at this weird point in history where we are battling with one another. We're having to invent new words to describe how bad we are at fighting. Things like gaslighting. The way we interact with one another and inflame and make situations worse between one another rather than better. This idea of cancel culture. I want you to reflect for a minute on how immature this actually is, okay? So like in one of the earliest stages of human development, what we talk about in the development of a child's maturation process is when you cross a threshold of understanding object permanence, right? When you're playing hide-and-go-seek with a kid and they finally hit the point where they realize that going like this doesn't actually make something go away. It really is there, regardless of what you want to happen in that moment. 
You can't erase history and you can't erase the ways that you have been hurt by people. Our bodies keep that score and that tension. You can't erase hurts in your history, but you can grow from it. And you can acknowledge it. And even a painful relationship can lead you to experience a better one at a later date. Now, sadly, we're not even learning to grow at this from the highest offices in our land. Our leaders are failing us in the way that civility, decency, humility, manners, nobility of office are carried. Our leaders fail us. And yet the reality is that words create worlds. This is how the biblical story starts. And God said. And then everything gets rolling. With words we create worlds. Stories. Imaginative places. Beautiful things. And with words we destroy people. And declare war. We send people to their death of words. They matter. Maybe now more than ever, they matter. Anybody remember this image about six years ago? 21, 20-something Coptic Christians from Egypt on the shore in Libya as a video was released by ISIS and each of these young men were beheaded and the videos broadcast out to the world, all because they wouldn't renounce the name of Jesus. As I try to think about like parallels for conflict or what it would have been like for Peter and Paul to actually come together, I want you to think about this for a minute. This is like the closest modern equivalent I could think of. See this guy here in the middle, the one who was speaking into the camera, who's leading the execution of all of these men? You understand that was Paul, right? Who presided over the stoning of Stephen and gave his approval over that. He persecuted and killed Christians. We, are, we always read the story backwards so we forget how significant this was. How fearful Peter must have been the first time he actually had to get in the same room with Paul. Was it just some sort of giant spy operation where he was going to get inside? Of course, they must have had all of these questions and fears. You and I would. If my church had this guy for a guest speaker coming in, how much trust would I have in them as a person? I'm not sure we've fully tapped the power of forgiveness, and in an effort to self-preserve, we've actually missed out on the opportunity to grow in what's really available to us. So this is where we pick up today's story in the book of Galatians. You remember right before this from last week, right? Paul went out into Arabia, and then back to Damascus, and then he went out, and, and then now he's coming back. Couldn't come back to Jerusalem. Then after 14 years... I went up again to Jerusalem, and this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also, and I went in response to a revelation, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. You see, I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running 
my race in vain. And yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Now this matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God doesn't show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And they asked that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing that I had been eager to do all along. So just like last week when we talked about the gleanings and things that we pick up out of the story, if people this far apart could get together in a room and think of how tempting it would have been to fight about the other things. When you want to win your case against somebody else and you've got the poison darts in your quiver and you know the words that would destroy them, you know how you could escalate that situation if you wanted to. You know the power of the tongue. You know how to hurt somebody, and the closer you get to somebody, the more power you have into their vulnerabilities in life, right? The people who you love the most, you give the ability to hurt you the most. Any one of these in this fight could have turned to the other one, and Peter could have been like, you were the one who betrayed Jesus face to face three times right before his death. Peter could have turned around to Paul and been like, you stood there when Stephen was stoned, and you smiled. Could you see how wrong this could have gone? There's pieces within this that I think we can pull out and understand of the depth of possibility that exists for us in the restoration of broken relationships when the gospel of Jesus Christ is allowed in. Number one, Paul comes to this looking for the common ground, a place to start where they can agree, common ground. Paul knew that they were better together. And he offers a certain level of vulnerability up. He wanted to know, he wanted the affirmation of the others that he had not been running and was not running his race in vain. He wasn't wasting his life. He wanted affirmation from them. There's a certain level of vulnerability in the middle of that because Paul didn't want the tension. He didn't want the angst. Life is hard enough. You consider the irony here, right? People probably would have thought that if anybody, Paul had the potential to be the spy who was coming in, who was faking something in order to be like this giant act of espionage and now turning the Christians. But he's the one that's calling the, the language of espionage and, and spy work here. We were fearful of false believers that had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Jesus Christ and to make us slaves. See how ironic that is that this is coming out of Paul's mouth? So if we first want to search for common ground, and you can hear Paul's heart for that coming into this interaction, the second piece in this is the necessity of vulnerability. You cannot rectify a division in a relationship if you are not willing to be vulnerable, if you are not willing to risk. And as he does this, he allows a new level of agreement to come between them. 
He's basically saying, assess me, test me, right? I've been out for 14 years doing this, but I need to know that we're on the same page. He opens himself up, and look what happens in the text. They recognized, he says, that I had been entrusted. They recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles. And in the middle of this, the best part, they recognized, what did they recognize in him that allowed them to do this? They recognized the grace given to me. You see, you don't forgive someone with a history like Paul's as a murderer without supernatural intervention. Most of us want to find peace in our relationships without God's involvement, but if you've ever truly been hurt by somebody in a deep and profound way, you are invited to exercise the supernatural gifts and the gift of Jesus Christ in order to pull off what should otherwise be impossible. Because the very hole that Paul could have never dug himself out of, Jesus carried him out of. Yes, Peter did betray Jesus three times, and then Jesus comes right back to him and says, Peter, you feed my sheep. You, the one who betrayed me. You, the one who wouldn't even associate your name with me. You're the one who called down curses, fireside, betraying me, and I looked at you, and I saw you. And how painful that must have been for Jesus, one of his best friends. But to turn around on the other side of the, re- the resurrection and say, Peter, I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to lead my church. And then the same for Paul. I want you to do this. Yes, you, the ex-murderer of Christians. You, the people, the very man who martyred my friends. I want you. And I understand too, right, this isn't sort of some cheap process that gets fixed automatically overnight by some magic fairy dust that falls from heaven. There is forgiveness instantaneously for anything we've ever done wrong to anybody else or for anybody else to us if we exercise that in Christ. But there are also consequences. And forgiveness and consequences are two different things, right? I have a human heart. If somebody wrongs me, it's going to take a little while to build trust back up. And it's okay to be honest about that. Is that why Paul went out for 14 years to prove his conversion before coming back and reconciling with the rest of the apostles? I think so. It's easy to come back, right, just with empty words to be able to say, I'm really sorry. You have to give space to the person then to be like, okay, well, I'm going to give you room to prove that out evidentially in your life and how you live and how you act. And Paul goes and does it. He didn't demand his place at that table right away. He went out and showed how badly he wanted it. And then he came back. You see, if you've ever wronged somebody, it is right to come to them in forgiveness. But it might not always be right to expect them to turn around and be able to forgive you fully and entirely right away in a sense that you are restored to the same level of relationship. Forgiveness, yes, right? But consequences, and trust aren't as automatically given for all of us with broken and wounded hearts. Now, the exciting thing in this story is Peter and Paul come together and they've got all these differences, right, in in their callings and in the way that they're understanding some key points of the gospel, but then they find the points of agreement and of shared interest, what they have in common right? I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had to the circumcised. And so for three straight verses, he kind of echoes this same refrain. Okay, so we agreed. He's going to go that way. I'm going to go this way. 
And they began to see the differences between the two of them, not as something that needed to be corrected or fixed, but actually as something that could be used for the glory of God. One of my favorite points in doing premarital counseling with couples is when you hit that maturity mark in a relationship where you realize that all the ways that they're different from you aren't something that you're supposed to fix or something that you're supposed to win over to your side, but might just actually be in God's infinite wisdom a gift to you to backfill for your weaknesses and to be something different than you are. That together you're actually stronger. I read this text and I have a picture of Peter and Paul coming back together with the other apostles all together. Titus and and Barnabas are going one way with, with Paul and the rest of the apostles are focusing in on Judea and Jerusalem and the people that they grew up with. And you imagine them all just like we do over here at Praise Team Glory on 3 right before we start chapel. I picture Peter and Paul and all the apostles together in this moment. And I think we can sing together. I think we can cover more ground actually if we split up. I think it's good that God called you that way and called us this way. I don't think there's one right answer in the room that we're supposed to be fighting for. I think we can cover more ground. We can win more souls for Christ if we would split up. So let's meet back together here when Jesus comes again. And until then, Maranatha Marathon on three. One, two, three. Go. See, so despite these massive differences, which you have to understand are huge, right? This whole issue of circumcision for them, This started with Abraham for 1,800 years, right? 18 centuries. This has been the physical demarcation of the Jewish people in that world. This is a big deal to give up. Imagine imagine historical practices in our churches, 1,800 years in the making, coming together and for them to be able to find common ground that's apart from those traditions and be able to say what we can agree on is, and then let's go and you bless you and bless you. And the fact that we're different and the fact that this body at Dort comes from 26 different countries, probably 70, 80 different denominations, doesn't prepare you to walk into a room to try to win somebody over to your understanding of things. Maybe, just maybe, in God's genius, you and I are different so that we can be salt and light in different ways, in different places across this globe. Maybe my job isn't to fix you or to change you, but just to bless you, to empower you, encourage you. Maybe the very way that you're different than I am isn't something to be fixed, but something to be used as part of the strategy of going into the world. Even people in business get this. My good friend back in Canada is part of a massive shoe shoe store chain, Aldo, and in every single shopping mall they've ever gone into, they open three stores, one with no shoe below $100, one with every shoe 50 to 100, and one with no shoe over 50. And he's like, we just want to get everybody. So they just sell shoes to every single different market and they just brand them all differently. Wouldn't it be helpful if the church kind of thought along those lines? I feel like Peter and Paul kind of had like an Aldo shoe store moment here. Let's just get everybody. Maybe that's what Jesus wants in all of this. And what's so fascinating to me is these 18 18 centuries have passed, 613 ways of keeping the Torah and the laws that all set them apart from the world and made them feel so different and so special. All changes here. 
And they're like, well, well, let's back it all the way up. Let's find the one thing we can totally agree on together. And so when Paul goes back out, I love this part of the story. I never really saw this verse in the text as the centering point for them until this week. All they asked was the only thing they wanted, right? 1,800 years of theological distinctiveness and the way we do things. Let's just, that's actually not what's going to matter right now, how we're going to go change the world. All they asked of us is that we would continue to remember the poor. The very thing I had been eager to do all along. So he says we found resonance there. You have to understand the unity in this purpose and how powerful they believe kindness and being generous with the kingdom of God was going to be in its effectiveness for transforming the entire globe, upsetting the entire culture, and converting the entire Roman Empire. No circumcision. We're not going to require that. We're not even going to start a seminary. That's not what we need right now. We don't need to get a Christian radio station. We don't even need a Christian college right now. We don't need churches. We don't need doctoral statements or creeds or confessions. Keep in mind, they don't even have a Bible put together yet. There's a few letters circulating around in different places. They don't have a Bible, and they're about to turn the world upside down because what they agreed upon is that we should take care of the poor. No more bickering and blaming. You see, a church and God's people that are united in a focus looking out rather than fighting within is God's church on the move and it's capable. And every healthy church that I have ever walked into is a church that is outward focused and not gazing at their navels, fighting with one another and bickering over things that don't matter when the fight's out there. And Peter and Paul knew it. And this is a lesson that needs to be recaptured in our homes and our relationships and amongst Christian brothers and sisters today. Find our common ground. Be vulnerable with one another. Appreciate the magnitude of grace that is at work in everybody's lives. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. And the mountain that Peter could have never climbed to make him right with Jesus after he betrayed him was just as big as the mountain that Paul had to climb to make him right with Jesus. And they found commonality in the grace that was theirs and is yours. So 26 countries, 70-some different denominations, you know what we have in common? All the most important things. This, first and foremost, I need Jesus. I desperately need a Savior. And so do you. And when they found that grace in the middle of the text together, they found what they needed to be a body. That same grace is still available to God's people. We ask the band to come on up and to lead you into a prayer here, and then we'll go out and sing to this. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for the models of reconciliation that we see. It's so hard to know when to stand up and say something boisterously. And when it's time to sit back and listen. But God, we pray that we would be people of great listening who seek no, not so much to be understood as to understand. That we would find gleanings in these ancient texts like this of even the most practical things in our lives. Father, I can only imagine in a room like this how many fissures and factions and hurts there are between family members 
and friends and abusers in all the ways that we've hurt each other. Father, allow room for your spirit to have its place in our hearts and convict us of the necessity of grace. That we would see how much grace has been extended to us. That not one of us could have ever saved ourselves. But you did. And out of that place, grant us an understanding of a generosity of grace to be released outside of us as well. To others. Including those who've hurt us the worst. You're amazing. You're a gift. You did what we could have never done. Please humble our hearts to never ask of somebody else what we ourselves are not already asking of you. So start with us. Help me understand how big your pool of grace is and how much of it I needed and will again tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen.